Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. All right, one other announcement that I want to mention today, and that is that um, we are excited to present that um, we announced to the members in December at our last members meeting that we had a few guys that have been in process for training toward eldership in Redemption Hill Church, and the elders have approved Caleb Graff to move forward. Um, Caleb and Jill have a baby girl, Lydia, who's, I guess, almost three, actually, but they've been married since 2010. They've been part of Redemption Hill since 2016. June 2016 was when they became members. Over the last five years, many of you know Caleb and Jill because they've served in various capacities as community group leaders. Caleb has served on our men's conference planning team, and um, they've been deacons that lead, currently lead our greeting team. And so they are, um, Caleb, the elders have presented Caleb for affirmation as an elder in the church. He's undergone training towards serving in this role, um, and this is in keeping with Redemption Hill's bylaws. Our members have to be given four weeks' notice of his nomination and candidacy for eldership. And so you have until March 4th if you have any questions or concerns or if you'd like to affirm his nomination um, to, uh, um, it, but it, we're looking, if you have questions or concerns in related to 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1 to his qualification to serve in this capacity. At Redemption Hill, elders serve a two-year term at a time, and, um, and so the members have to affirm men to serve in that role. But assuming there's no disqualifying concern that is raised, um, we intend to present Caleb for affirmation at the members meeting on March 6th. So this is your four-week notice. All right, with that, let's pray, and we're going to jump into the text. Father, we, we ask that you would still our hearts. We ask today that you would give us a hunger and a thirst for things that will actually satisfy us? Um, would you expose within us what we turn to that comes up short and leaves us hungry and thirsty? So we ask that your word would penetrate our hearts like a surgical scalpel this morning. We lift this time in ourselves to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. In Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, <laughs> Dumbledore takes Harry on a journey to find a Horcrux. If you think this is a spoiler, we are long past <laughs> the time for spoilers. If you don't know anything about Harry Potter, that's fine. Um, but, in, but he takes, Dumbledore took, if you remember, he took Harry to a sea cave where they found a horcrux, and it was a terrifying, terrifying moment. It was really dark, and, um, and so as they find this horcrux, and if you don't know, there's horcruxes they need to destroy, and it's a whole plot line that I'm not going to take the time to explain today. But as they do, they, come to, they had to cross this lake, and, it, it's, and they come to this basin, and Dumbledore is convinced that the horcrux is at the bottom of this basin. It actually kind of looks like this baptismal font. 
And, and so Harry asked him, do you think the horcrux is in there? And Dumbledore says, oh yes, but how to reach it? The potion can't be penetrated by hand, vanished, parted, scooped up, or siphoned away. Nor can it be transfigured, charmed, or otherwise made to change its nature. I can only conclude that this potion is supposed to be drunk. And as he drinks it, this mysterious potion, if you remember, it, it changes things for him. He gets delirious and afraid, and, and his vision starts to go bad, and he can't see, and, and he's extremely thirsty and wants to drink water that, that he shouldn't touch in that lake inside the sea cave. But, but it's this, this traumatic experience where Harry has to take his mentor and lead him out of that place. It almost kills him, which is what it was intended to do. I bring this up today because we turn to all kinds of wells that we drink deeply of, expecting it to satisfy us, expecting it to, us to give us what we want in it. And we don't realize sometimes that the very things that we're drinking are killing us, that it's making us delirious and inducing fear and, and making us more thirsty than when we started. And so I want you to think today as we come into this text, we've, we're in John chapter 7, um, and so if you have a Bible, you can turn it there with me. If not, it will be on the screen. We have Bibles on the book table in the back that you can grab. And so we're going to be in John chapter 7. And as we're walking through this passage in John, Jesus, we've just finished the chapter 6, which many call the bread of life discourse, where Jesus is talking about identifying himself as the bread of life and calling people to come and eat his flesh and drink his blood and this hard teaching, but where he's saying that he is the only nourishment for our souls. Well, in chapter 7, this continues, but you'll see as we come into chapter 7 that there's this, this theme of seeking and seeking and seeking, but it comes to the end and it brings it together with language of thirst and drinking deeply. And so as we walk into chapter 7 together, this is where I want you to start today, is picture this with me. If you can, use some holy imagination this morning, that you're walking the journey of your life. Most of you, most of us, are pretty parched. Things don't go the way we want them to go. We have a sense that things aren't as they ought to be. We want it to be different. We sometimes blame God that it's not different. But we need something that's going to restore life and joy within us. And, and so we turn to different wells to drink deeply. That as you come to the edge of a well and look down inside of it, what is it that you're turning to? What is it that you're drinking in to try to satisfy your soul? So this is what we're going to address together today. I am going to read an abnormally long section for Redemption Hill Church. Um, we are gonna cover all, of, well you can see it on the screen, we're going to cover all of chapter seven, which is 52 verses. And I still plan to get you out of here at the normal time. Um, what this means is we had this discussion as a staff that this is a long section, but it's one story that's hard to sort out unless we really break it down, and we don't want to spend like eight weeks in chapter seven, and so we decided to take it in one piece, and um, the bottom line is I believe in you. <laughs> I think you can handle it. I think you can stay tuned in and hear this story of Jesus's life and ministry, but there, we're seeing again that he's returning to Jerusalem, and as we read this, I want you to hear, listen for language of seeking, and think about, again, what is it that you turn to to find satisfaction and joy for your soul? So it says, 
After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of, the booths, of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And, thought he was, and there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he never studied? And so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Hasn't Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? So why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on, on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is this not the man who they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you don't know. I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. And so they were seeking to arrest him. Because no one laid, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him and they said, when the Christ appears, will, they, will, he, will, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we won't find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as of yet, the Spirit had not yet been given, had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is, this, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and he comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to the, and said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the, or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law, who does, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so this is a story of Jesus at the Feast of Booths. Similarly to the wedding in Cana, it begins with Jesus at home. But things are looking pretty bleak at this point. Remember, he had just had a crowd of 5,000 men he had fed, estimated as many as 20,000 people, but he thinned the crowds out when he started teaching hard things. The crowds had left. Jewish leaders want to kill Jesus. He doesn't go down publicly to Jerusalem because he knows that they want to kill him. His own disciples and followers have left. Only the 12 remain, and one of those is going to betray him. And now we see that even Jesus' own family, his own brothers, don't believe in him. And so we have now the family headed to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. It's called Sukkoth. And it's a festival to remember Israel's time in the wilderness. For the entire festival, people eat in shelters that are set up outdoors to commemorate the Exodus. But it's a feast. It's a celebration. It's something that, that people look forward to, like a big family camp out. Um, I had the privilege to go to Jerusalem in October 2019, you know, before the world shut down. By the way, this is the 100th Sunday that we have streamed services. 100 Sundays that we've been walking through this together. Just a little aside. So um, <laughs> I, when I arrived, I didn't realize that it was the Feast of Booths. And so I walked into the old city Jerusalem and saw these structures everywhere, and it hit me of what was happening. And the city was flooded with people making pilgrimage there for that festival. And so I got to experience this festival in 2019. And here's a picture of one of the booths built out of one of the houses. If we could put that up. And so this was, it was, it's a reminder to the, the Jewish people that God is their provider, that he's the one that can nourish them, that did so through the wilderness and through the exodus, that he provided manna for them. And, and, and so every day the priests would go in Jesus' time to the pool of Siloam and draw water and put it in a golden pitcher and they would walk in a procession, a parade to the temple and they would sing Isaiah chapter, out of Isaiah chapter 12, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And so this is a daily song that people were singing, and as Jesus came into Jerusalem, he knew that, and that's why he comes to the image he comes to at the end, saying, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. You want to draw from the wells of salvation? They are here in front of you right now. Jesus knew what was waiting for him in Jerusalem, but he also knew it wasn't his time yet. And so, again, as we read this today, I hope that you heard the word seek and search over and over and over again. Jesus confronted the hearts of people, as we've seen him do over and over again as well. 
the wells they were turning to for the thirst of their souls. And in the ancient Near East, this was a particularly important image. We don't think about water that critically because we can walk into our kitchen or a bathroom and turn on a tap and water comes out. Now, you might get snooty about water and decide if you're gonna use a Brita or have filtration systems, but we can safely turn on water straight out of the tap and drink anytime. In the ancient Near East, it's desert where these people are. Water was scarce, and so this is an important image. So today as we look at this, we're going to quickly move through, but look at, at the wells that we turn to in our lives and that we see exposed in chapter seven of John, and then look to a deeper well to drink from. And so that's the big idea, is looking to a deeper well. Now, the first thing that we see from the people in this passage and in our own lives is that we grasp for control. That's one of the wells we turn to. Jesus started teaching in the temple courts, which I love this, right? Jesus is like, I can't go down with my family. And he tells his brothers, I can't go with you because it's not my time yet. And then he shows up privately, and it's not like Jesus is subtle. He ends up in the temple courts teaching people. He goes right to the middle of it all where he knew the religious leaders would be who were trying to arrest him and kill him. And he goes right at it. And again, people are amazed at his wisdom. And, and they were looking and they say, this guy didn't go to any of the rabbinic schools. Like, how does, how does he teach that way? Because he doesn't, he doesn't even, he never studied. Now, when they say that, it's not that he couldn't read and write. That was, and most people could read and write and were educated to an extent. But they were saying he wasn't in a school of one of the major rabbis. And that's part of the authoritative nature of Jesus' teaching, is that much like today, that people in teaching would appeal to rabbis through ages and through different streams and schools as the basis for their authority of interpretation on the text. If you don't think that's the same, it's the same thing here when I'll turn to a quote from like Tim Keller, and everybody goes, that quote was amazing. I could say the same words, you'd, be like, you'd forget it. You say, oh, but John Calvin said that. He's, that. Therefore, it is true. And so similarly, we do the same thing. But Jesus wasn't doing that. He spoke of his own authority. He claimed a higher authority. And he claimed to have the authority of God himself. And so this is where it comes to us. Just like the people that Jesus encountered in Jerusalem, we are okay with the idea of authority as long as that authority agrees with us. As soon as it goes in a direction we didn't expect or a way that we didn't like, that's when we get upset. And we think about authority, I think we often think about pure power, but I think it's helpful. Andy Crouch defines it. See, I'm doing it right now. <laughs> Listen to Andy Crouch's definition, and this will prove that it's true. Andy Crouch defines authority as the capacity for meaningful action. That means we have the ability to do something and accomplish something. And so in our own lives, I think that desire for authority, if I say it, desire for authority, you might say like, ah, I don't want to be in charge. But there is a reality that every single one of us has a desire for control. It doesn't get taught. This is why if you have ever been around a toddler at mealtime, it can be a nightmare. Why is it mealtime? Because it's one of the only things a toddler can control in their lives. They can't control what they wear or when they get dressed or when they put shoes on, they try. You know, that was the conversation we had with our kids when they were super little, like, you're gonna have to put pants on every day. <laughs> you're gonna have to get used to this. 
And, but, but a toddler can control whether or not they open their mouth or whether they throw stuff on the floor or whether they spit something out. It's a desire to control their own circumstances and it is deeply embedded within each one of our souls so that this is where I say we like the idea of authority but as soon as it starts to do something we don't like and we feel like we're out of control of our own lives, our own decisions, that's when we go hold on and push back. Some of you are looking to the well of control to quench your soul. That if you can control enough, that you will finally be satisfied. But authority and control are nothing on their own. They come up dry, and it's killing you slowly. The second well we turn to is that we long for recognition. So we see this as it continues on. So, here, Jesus said, you know, he had said, my own authority comes from God. You can judge whether I'm speaking of my own authority. And he goes on in verse 18 to say, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. In him there is no falsehood. And so Jesus exposes some things here and says that we have a glory hunger within us. Now, again, I've used different language here because I think if I just say to you simply that you struggle with seeking your own glory, most of us are like, Come on, that's a little extreme. I'm not that narcissistic. Maybe a little narcissistic, but not like identifiably and able to be diagnosed. <laughs> and so that we think of glory and think of maybe celebrity or we think of influence, but, but at the core what this is is every one of us has a deep longing to be recognized, to be seen, to be appreciated. And it changes for us. Some of you work really hard and you would love somebody to just notice more. Or maybe there's a hunger that can never satisfy that people can't notice enough, but you want people to, to call out and affirm the hard work you're doing. For some of you, it's a desire to be heard and understood. And so you just, you just fight and fight and fight to be heard and understood and it's never quite enough. For some of you, it's your intelligence. You want people to recognize that, that you're smart, that you've got things figured out, that they should listen to you. Or wisdom, that you have something to say to speak into people's lives, and when they don't listen to you, you get frustrated by it. And you just think, like, I talked to you, and you went and did the opposite of everything I told you to do. Of course your life is a mess. Some of you, it's, it's you're, you know, you're, it could, we could go a million directions here, right? Some of you want to be recognized for your empathy. And so you empathize with people and really do want to reach their hearts, but then when it's not recognized how close and empathetic you're being, then you get mad because they're not recognizing that you're trying to reach their hearts. Or some of you, it's your beauty. You work really hard to make sure that people can see how beautiful you are. You're meticulous in your preparation to present yourself to the world every morning, even if it's only from the waist up for Zoom. None of those things are bad. It isn't bad to work hard. It's not bad to have a need to be seen or heard. It's not bad to be intelligent and, or offer wisdom or be empathetic or to be beautiful. None of those things are intrinsically bad and the desire for recognition isn't bad. But the pro this is the problem we see all along. The desire for some element of control in your life isn't negative. Yeah, of course you'll have that desire. So the desire for a capacity, for meaningful action, and authority to find that way, of course that's good. But the problem is when we take these things that are good things and lift them up to be the ultimate things in our lives as the wells that we turn to to satisfy our souls. 
That's what, it's that, that fine line of motive on, in, in, underneath that none of us can assess in each other because we can't even quite figure it out in our own hearts, right? Like, what, when is it that you're working hard to serve somebody versus working hard to be recognized? That's one that I have a hard time with, that it comes up regularly for me because I'll do stuff around the house and then be like, Alyssa, come and love me. Did you see that I did the dishes again? I cooked dinner. I rebuilt an entire shelving system that I had to take apart because I had permanently installed it and reinstalled it this weekend. I need you to love me in response. And what's hard is that it always starts out as me saying, I want to do this. And it starts out with a more pure motive of, I want to serve my family in this way or serve my friends in this way. I want to do these things for their good. But then when it doesn't get the recognition that I want to receive, that's when I go, like, hold on a second. I need to be noticed for this. And that's when it shifts from being a good thing that should be recognized. You know, you do something good and people should say, like, hey, thanks for doing that. I appreciate it. But when it turns from a desire to serve somebody or even a good desire to have some recognition to evaluating whether it's enough recognition, we've crossed a line into, into idolatry in our souls and we've turned to the well of recognition to satisfy our souls and it will come up dry every time. The third is that we work for righteousness. You see what Jesus turns to next. He does, we've seen this before over and over again in John's gospel, right? Like Jesus will hit a nerve. Like this is, he's already hit authority and glory hunger. And now he pushes harder and says, all right, let's bring this up. <laughs> Moses has given you the law, right? Yet none of you keeps the law. He's saying this is what you're turning to. Over and over, what you keep quoting, but none of you keeps it. So, so why are you trying to kill me when you can't even keep the law that you claim? And the crowd answered him, you have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus, you're delusional and maybe demon-possessed. And he answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. This is going back to him healing the guy who had been crippled for 38 years, and he healed him on the Sabbath. He's saying, I did that one thing, and you're all amazed. Moses gave you circumcision. He's like, I know it came through Abraham, but Moses, it's in the law of Moses, but from the fathers. But, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So Jesus says, this, okay, you have the law, and you don't even listen to it, and you circumcise people on the Sabbath because you have determined that it is more important to circumcise a male infant on the eighth day than to keep the Sabbath law. And so you have had to figure out how to rank what is the highest priority in keeping the law. So he's bringing up this dissonance and saying, so, this is so you don't break the law of Moses. And he's saying, so you're angry with me because I made a, whole man, a man's whole body well on the Sabbath? And so he's showing the dissonance. Like you're trying to kill Jesus because he healed a man on the Sabbath, but these people, are, as, we, as we looked at when we were in that text, there are all kinds of things that were done on the Sabbath, including circumcision to keep the law. And so Jesus it reveals the inconsistency of legalism here. And this is where it's easy for us to look down on, I think, look down on the people that Jesus interacts with in the Gospels, and from 2,000 years distance, and with it written down, we can say, like, what fools? 
How did they not get this? How could they miss it so badly? But we do the same thing. Every one of us, in our own prescription of our own rules and our own work for righteousness, to be right, has things that are completely contradictory and make no sense. <laughs> a filter in my head. We're going to go for it. We've seen this during COVID. None of us has been consistent. But we're all convinced in our consistency and in the inconsistency of others. But all of us have had to draw lines somewhere and where we break those lines and where we don't break those lines and we've drawn them individually and, here, but here, and then hold other people to what we want to do or not want to do or criticize people for not being as free as we are or criticize people for not being as restricted as we are and we've been, become critical of others while we don't even hold our own standards with consistency. We do this all the time. This is why Christians divide over things that are not actually listed in Scripture as sin. And we get Christians and movements leaving and splitting and parting from each other over things that aren't explicit in Scripture, areas of, of freedom and areas that are gray and more difficult and take wisdom to navigate, but aren't listed chapter and verse as sin. Who to vote for, who not to vote for, what party to vote for, what party you could never vote for and be a Christian. Whether to eat something or not eat something, whether to drink something or not drink something, whether to touch something or not touch something, none of this is new. This is stuff that Paul wrote to the Colossians in 50 AD, saying you, all these things have the appearance of human wisdom, but they have no value in restraining the desires of the flesh. And so we set up rules to try to convince ourselves that we're okay that I'm in the right. But what Jesus is showing here is that even our rules are inconsistent. C.S. Lewis talked about this, that if we had an experiment that we could do that, that somebody put a recording device around our neck, he said a tape recorder, but uh, most of you have never seen a tape. Um, so um, if, if, if you had a recording device that was in your pocket listening to you all the time, hypothetically, <laughs> but it recorded all of your moral pronouncements throughout your life, and God, you came to the end and stood before God, and God just held that up. Not even his holy and perfect law, but just held your own moral code up against you. Every single one of us would fail. We can't even keep our own rules. And so Jesus is showing that, that we work hard for our own righteousness and get convinced of that, and we're, you're either somebody who is working purely out of your own righteousness, trying to earn your way and earn your own, your own path in this world and earn your blessing before God, whether or not you would even identify that there is a God. So we either work like that outside of Christ or even those of us who are Christians have a tendency to believe somehow deep within us that yes, I am saved by grace alone through faith alone. It's only in the finished work of Jesus that I come to salvation and now I'm gonna begin to earn God's favor and earn my sanctification by my own effort. And you're standing outside of the gospel. You're caught in your own legalism. And when I say you, every one of us falls into this. But listen, if you turn to the well of working for your own righteousness, it will come up dry and leave you thirsty every single time. The fourth well we turn to is we search for safety. We see this in verses 32 to 36, that, that Jesus said to them, like, listen, you, 
you know where I come from. He says, I know that you know I grew up in Nazareth and Galilee, uh, but I've not come of my own accord. God sent me. And the Pharisees in the crowd were muttering these things about him, like, like hey, you know, there's this divide. Like, is this the guy they're trying to kill? Do the authorities know that he's the Christ? Like, are we supposed to expect more miracles and signs than what this guy is doing? Like, what? they're confused. There's divides in the people that are hearing him. And it says that the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering. So the leaders start to hear the muttering in the, in the people. And that's when the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. They're like, okay, this is enough. But Jesus then said, I love this. He says, all right, I'm going to be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. And the response is, is he going to join the diaspora? <laughs> like, is he going to leave Israel? He's going to go out into the Roman Empire, into the Greek-speaking world? Is that, what, where, what is he talking about? You will seek me and not find me where I am, you cannot come. Well, we know, if you know the end of this story... That after Jesus' death in our place for our sin, resurrection conquering death with life, that he ascended to his Father in heaven, and he's saying to these people, you're going to look for me everywhere, and you will not find me at that point. Now, in other places, Jesus says, everyone who seeks will find. Everyone who asks will be given. Everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. But he's saying these people's hearts have turned against him, and they will never be able to find him. What the issue here is that they were looking for comfort and safety, and Jesus was a threat to the institutions that existed. So he wasn't leaving them comfortable and safety, and this comes true for us too because we are often looking for a superman, not a savior. The people here wanted a deep teacher. They wanted somebody that was going to reveal the mysteries of God to them. They wanted mystery. They wanted Messiah just to appear. And they're like, Jesus, you just, we know where you grew up. Like, this isn't, we thought Messiah would just descend. They wanted more miracles, more signs of power. They're like, well, should we wait for more miracles than this guy? This has been a theme all the way through John, that people that are most reliant on the signs of the power of God are those who are least, in, least likely to believe in Jesus as actually being God incarnate. Because they were always looking for one more proof, one more reason to believe. They were never content to just say, this is the Christ. So why do they want to kill Jesus? Because they didn't want somebody to come. They wanted wisdom and teaching, but they didn't want somebody to show them their own sin and shortcomings. Jesus, give us wisdom and teaching, but don't hold the law against us and show us our inconsistencies. They wanted mystery from the, from the Messiah, but, but they didn't want somebody to come in and question their behaviors and commitments to expose their inconsistencies. And, and, and the reality is for us that if just to admit that we need a savior is a threat to our comfort and stability, and we will seek to kill whatever threatens our comfort. Because it starts to feel unsafe. And so we will seek to put it to death. You might think that's extreme until you drive on 395. <laughs> Last night, we have an adorable, soft, snuggly puppy. He's the dream dog that is great. I never wanted a dog. I didn't want a pet. And he's won us over and won me over. And, um, and last night, though, usually he's like good in every way. He's just a, a great puppy. Last night, it's a Saturday night, and I'm like, I'm getting up at 5.30 so I can get over to the church and start prepping a sermon. 
Like, I, I need, Saturday nights for me aren't like, hey, let's go out and be crazy. Saturday nights for me are like, I got to work tomorrow. And so I was trying to go to bed, and at like 11.15, the dog, we have a bell that we put next to our door because we thought this would be a cuter way for him to let us know he has to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so the dog would come up to our bed and try to attack our down comforter, and then run down the stairs, and we'd hear, and he would started like moaning, like trying to speak to us. And so I went down, and Alyssa's like, he's just hungry, but I don't want to leave food out because it might draw mice. And I was like, well, I don't care about the mice. Here's some food. And he ate the food. I go up to bed and lay down again. <laughs> he's still ringing it. And so I had to get up and like put on a bathrobe, and it, it was like 20 degrees, and stand outside in the front yard with a leash on Fozzie, because we're in the city and don't have a fence, and just standing there saying, just go to the bathroom. And he finally went to the bathroom, and then I went upstairs, and that was all he wanted. He was hungry and had to go to the bathroom. But it was the first time I was ready to throw my puppy through a wall. <laughs> In that moment, nobody's thinking well when you're trying to sleep. And we have an irrational response of anger when something is threatening our comfort. My comfort was being under a down comforter in my room, enjoying the warmth with a cold room, the best sleeping conditions known to human beings so that I could rest and sleep well in preparation for the day. And Fozzie had different ideas. And it makes us irrationally angry. But if our felt safety and comfort is the well that we turn to, it's gonna come up dry. So this brings us to the call to us today. Come, drink, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Come, drink, and be filled by the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit of God can undo all the things that our flesh reaches for. That's control, recognition, righteousness, and safety. Only the Spirit of God can do that. And think about all the ways, again, that people divided in their response to Jesus in this chapter, that his brothers don't believe him, but then they say to him, like, hey, go perform some miracles because you gotta go public with this. So they don't believe him, but they, can you imagine that, by the way, sleeping under the same roof as Jesus? He's the oldest brother in the family, and you live your whole life sleeping next to the incarnate son of God and still don't believe in him. Now, it could be because he's your brother and you never had anything against him or to hold over him. But even there, they don't believe in him, but they're trying to push him to perform miracles. That you have people saying he's a good man, and others saying, well, he's leading people astray. You have some saying he's a good teacher, and others saying he's a false teacher. You have some saying he's the prophet, and others saying he is delusional and demon-possessed. That you, know, you have some saying he can't be the Christ. That I, knew where he grew, I know where he grew up, and is this enough signs that he's performed? Others saying he's a threat worthy of being arrested and killed. And we have to understand that if Jesus is not who he claimed to be, if Jesus is not who John is proclaiming to be as he introduces us to Jesus, God incarnate, the one who will judge all people, one with the Father, doing God's work here on earth, Lord over the Sabbath, interpreter of the law, Jesus, if he's not those things, then he has to be the other options. Because with those claims, he can't just be a good man or a good teacher. If it's not true, then he's got to be leading people astray, a false teacher, delusional and demon-possessed, a threat. 
But here's what he has to say. The closing options, he stands up on the last day of the feast. So again, he starts off by saying, I'm not going down there. People are trying to kill me. I can't go publicly. And he ends up standing up in the last day of the feast in the temple courts. And he stood up and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this is the invitation to us today. Are you thirsty? If you don't realize your thirst, then you'll never come to a place to have it quenched. Are you thirsty? And how are the wells that you're turning to doing at bringing satisfaction? Are they coming up dry? I mean, sure, they might feel good for a moment. Control always feels good for a moment. It turns lonely. Recognition feels good for a moment, and you need more of it. Proving that you're right feels good for a moment, and then you see the damage it does to others. Comfort and safety feel good for the moment. These are all good things, but again, when we make them ultimate, the primary pursuit of our lives, then every one of them will become like Voldemort's potion in that basin, killing us slowly while driving us to intensified thirst and crazy-making despair as we keep spooning it into our mouths, wondering why it's just not working. And so how's it going for you? your pursuit of control, your longing for recognition, your work for righteousness, and your search for safety? Has it come up empty often enough for you to turn to something else? Now, if you're totally satisfied with your life and would happily keep going as things are with nothing else to long for, and you're totally satisfied in your soul, then by all means, go and be well and enjoy that. It would make you unique in the history of humanity. All this is anticipated in the prophets that we saw this. In John 4, Jesus used similar language to the woman at the well that living water is the running supply of God's goodness and faithfulness and love poured into us by his spirit. And so the invitation that Jesus has here is simple and clear. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, this is out of his heart, he will flow rivers of living water. He's saying, believe in him. This means when we talk about these wells we turn to, it means, do we trust Jesus? Do we trust that, that our life is better off in his hands? Do we, are we willing to let go of the other things that we're pursuing and trust that he can quench our thirst where, where the other ones are dark and dry? The wells that we pursue could never accomplish this. Because this is the invitation of Jesus to you today. If you're willing to let go of those other pursuits and trust that he can satisfy, then he's saying, if you're thirsty, come and drink. If you're dissatisfied, come and drink. If you're empty, come and drink. If you are beat down and worn out today, come and drink. If you're exhausted, come and drink. If you're anxious and depressed, if you're overwhelmed by questions and doubts, if you've been hurt and betrayed, if you are crushed by sadness and ache with loneliness, come and drink. If you are feeling heavy with shame and your life is out of control, come and drink. If you feel unseen and unknown and unloved, come and drink. 
If you're dried out and worn out trying to get it right and working hard at it, come and drink. If you're imprisoned by your own fear due to your desire for safety, then you can break out of that prison and its dryness and come to Jesus and drink. If, you have, if everything you have ever set out for, every comfort and every achievement has come to you and you're living in the midst of it and you've come to the realization that with everything you ever hoped for, it's still empty, then come and drink. Drink deeply of living water and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this comes to those of you who are followers of Christ today. Because some of you have taken the first step. Again, you've believed in Jesus. You've had a taste, like a Dixie cup of the living water. He said, Jesus, I, I believe in you and I've prayed a prayer. But you have no idea what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Functionally, you believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And you get a little uneasy when people start talking about the Spirit because it's a little strange and it's a little mysti mystical. And, and when we start, start talking about the Holy Spirit, guess what, what the Holy Spirit threatens? Our control. Our recognition, because he, in all he does, he glorifies Jesus. Our working for righteousness, because he shows us that it comes up empty. And he threatens our safety and comfort because when the Spirit's moving in your life, it will make you uncomfortable. And so we get uncomfortable with the Holy Spirit, but, and we start to like look at spiritual gifts as a, as a matter of self-fulfillment rather than as a Spirit-emboldened ability to serve Christ and his church and reach lost people. But Jesus has called us to be filled by his Spirit. Now, it's a little strange too, right? This is a passive command. It's not, we can't go and say, like, go and find the Holy Spirit. It's saying, be filled. So this is something that God does for us. You can't, you can't, Jesus doesn't command us, like, fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. There's no way for us to do that. So how, what does this mean? Listen, every person who turns to Christ, who comes to in belief, is filled with, indwelled by the Spirit of God. But in our lives, we will have a greater tenderness and attention to God's presence and to his spirit, and the more we fully surrender our addiction to control, recognition, righteousness, and comfort. So the more fully our lives will start to reflect what we say we believe as the spirit moves in us. The, the more the spirit will have the, we will give the freedom for the spirit to pull away and peel away and cut away the callousness of our own hearts so that they're sensitive to him. The, the more that, our, that the delusions of darkness that have consumed us will fade and sensitivity to God's presence and movement will rise. It's when we can see what God is doing and join him in it. And so we come back to this again. What are you seeking today? What wells have you turned to? And how's it going? Are you finding life-giving waters that satisfy? Or are you drinking potions that are leading to your delirium and fear and thirst? Jesus has offered living water. Come, drink, and be filled by the Holy Spirit. Father, we are aching inside today. Would you help us be honest about our own thirst? Would you help us to be able to recognize where it's come up empty? Would you help us to recognize where we're grasping for control and longing for recognition, working for righteousness? 
pursuing comfort and safety and lifting those things up as the means by which our souls will be satisfied? Lord, would you expose it so that we can address it? And would you show us that the call to us to be filled by the Holy Spirit, that, that wells will come up within us of living water, is not something that you're imposing on us, but that you're giving us a taste. And would you give us a desire for that living water and the palate to be able to, to taste its fullness and understand that it is good? Would you free us from our own pursuits and addictions to them? And I pray today that, that you'd help our hearts to turn in belief in our only hope in Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.